Welcome to Playing Big, a podcast about what it means to play big in life and in business, and about changing the world with big ideas and big action. I'm your host, Blaine Fyan, Chief Evangelist here at True Footage, and I'd like to welcome each and every one of you to Playing Big. Now, as many of our longtime listeners know from prior episodes, I didn't go the traditional route after high school. Instead of going that route of, say, college, college degree, traditional job, I chose, of all things, Zen Monastery, martial arts immersion, travel around the world, and of course, intense training. I did university. I did community college for a bit. I did university for a bit. But when compared to all the other things I was doing at the time, that particular experience just couldn't possibly stack up against everything else that I was doing. Not to mention, I was simply a bad college student. Having experiences was way more important to me at the time than book learning was. And in fact, even today, 30 years later, having experiences is still held in higher regard than most things. Nevertheless, one of the most indelible life experiences for me was the experience of being a serious student of a true mentor. I mean, we have labels in the appraisal industry that resemble a traditional mentor-protege relationship, but from my experience and what I've witnessed, 99% of those come nowhere close to a true mentorship experience. And that is says nothing against the mentor or the protege in that matter. They just have never been taught what it really means, uh, like old school, old country mentorship and apprenticeship. A mentor in the appraisal industry, or really any industry for that matter, is mentoring a trainee or an apprentice in some aspect of that particular industry or business. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not on the same level as, again, an old school mentorship where the mentor cared more about the the personal growth and development of the individual than, say, just their aptitude in a particular vocation or industry or job. And in my opinion, at least in the appraisal industry, the term supervisor is a better term than mentor. And and for the reasons that I just mentioned, most people are woefully undertrained and incapable of helping a protege grow in all the ways that a true mentor cares for an apprentice. In fact, I did a two-part podcast sometime last year called So You Want to Be a Mentor on this topic, and I'll have links in this episode so you can go back and listen to that if you'd like to. Nevertheless, over the years, I was under my mentor's guidance and tutelage. I journaled daily and I took Uh, copious notes on that experience. And then years later, I was going through my journals from that time in my life, and I started to see some of these kinds of themes and threads emerging. And the themes that were making themselves visible were what I eventually called wisdom keys. I had heard a, uh, a televangelist talk about wisdom keys. And I thought, well, that's kind of a cool name. I think I'm going to call these wisdom keys. Uh, and so I, I felt that the, uh, the wisdom keys were kind of perfectly what I was seeing as the lessons in my journal. And the lessons weren't nearly, of course, as concise and as obvious as how I'm laying them out in this episode. But I dug through my notes and my writings with an open mind, and the themes began to, to kind of emerge. And the first theme that emerged, which is the first wisdom key, was this. See everything and everybody as a teacher. Sometimes this wisdom key presents itself to me as everybody and everything is a teacher. But as far as instruction goes, if I was telling somebody, hey, this is the wisdom key and this is what I want you to to do, is to see everybody and everything 
as a teacher. Now, this is a very common kind of positive thinking piece of advice. Almost everybody's heard something along the lines of, hey, there's uh, something to learn from all situations, especially the bad or the challenging ones, which is absolutely, absolutely true in my opinion. But that's not necessarily the wisdom key that I'm referring to, at least not completely. It's definitely part of it. Being that my mentor was a bona fide Zen master and I was immersed deeply in that world and being influenced by, by the Eastern practice of, say, detachment from outcomes is a very Zen thing. Detached from the outcome, detached from things, detachment from needs and wants and desires. The idea that everything is simply an opportunity to learn from was a moment-to-moment practice. N- not always successful, but something always to keep our minds on, even today. However, the part of the teaching that really opened my mind was how my mentor thought about teaching people. I mean, he just, he turned it completely inside out. He was a master Aikido teacher as well. And he had a particular teaching methodology and philosophy, which was that everybody already knows everything he is teaching. Not not that there are know-it-all, but in his mind, he believed every person he was looking at already knew how to do everything he was going to teach them, at least in some form or fashion, deep within them. They just didn't know it yet. Let that sink in. So his job was not to cram information into them physically and verbally or visually, kinesthetically. He saw his job as instead doing the opposite, trying to strip away the layers of unknowing to get to that part of them that knew what to do already. And when he was successful at doing that, the individual would have this very clear aha moment that you could visibly see them experience where they would recognize that they knew exactly what to do and how to do it. Like they'd go, oh, like I get it now. And they may have thought that they just all of a sudden understood, like they just had this moment of recognition and understanding and they could finally perform the technique, but that's not the way that my teacher saw it. No, he knew that they knew what to do before they did. And he would often tell them this, like you already know what to do. I'm just helping you remember, like put back together your knowing. And if he could just get them to remember it, that it, that it was it was all within them somewhere, they could find it. And they would see themselves differently and it would give them this special confidence. And it was really impressive to see. It was a mind-blowing concept to me at the time. And it took me a, a while to fully comprehend what it all meant. I mean, I saw it and I experienced it on a daily basis all around the world with people. So I embraced it pretty quickly because it essentially turned the educational process inside out. Instead of almost all the responsibility being on the teacher to make the student successful at something, I mean, that's what a lot of people think. They go to study something and they think, okay, teacher, cram knowledge into me, like force it into me, I'll try to learn something from you. And, and they kind of put a little bit of responsibility, even if they do it unknowingly, they're not doing it in a mean way, but they put a lot of responsibility onto teachers Like if I fail, if I don't get the technique, if I don't get the idea, a little bit's on you, teach. So the responsibility to a large degree in most educational settings is for the teacher to make the students successful. And instead, in this model that my teacher taught in, it it gave a lot of the responsibility, responsibility back to the student to recognize that they already know what to do somewhere inside of them. They just have to keep stripping away the layers 
like onion skin. You're just slowly peeling off these, these layers of unknowing until they get to that place where they go, ah, yes, I get it now. I, I understand. So in the West, we might see that and say, oh, good, they finally get it. But a real teacher recognizes that the person already knows what to do. They just haven't realized that they know it yet. And in fact, he would often start out every beginner's class. We did these six-week introductory courses where every six weeks, there'd be a hundred new people coming into the dojo to try out Aikido or Zen meditation or Japanese language or whatever classes we, were, we, we had people teaching all throughout the building. And if he was teaching that class and he taught us to do it as instructors, that when you start out that six-week introductory course, you would say that. You would tell everybody that they already know what to do. We just have to find that place inside of them where they recognize that they know what to do, even if they've never seen or practiced those particular martial arts techniques. In this case, it was Aikido. And so, again, you could see when, when you start telling people, hey, you really already know what to do. I mean, you walked here, you ran here, you drove here, you know how to use your arms and legs, you know how to do all these things. So don't think of these as new or crazy movements and concepts. Let's try to connect them to things you already know how to do. And then it won't seem so distant. It's not like you're learning something new, you're just remembering. We're all great teachers. We're all great public speakers. We're all successful business owners. We're all great leaders. We're all great therapists. We all have everything we need to be, do, and have everything we could ever want in our lives. And it's not a matter of cramming more info into our limited storage facilities we call our brains. Our brains are not meant as massive storage facilities. They're meant to keep us alive. And it's not about cramming more info in there before we've learned enough to be successful at something. It's more a matter of stripping away the layers of unknowing and remembering the greatness that already exists within every one of us. So the first wisdom key that everyone and every, everything is a teacher is more about remembering that everything we could ever need already exists within us. As leaders, it's our job to help others see that within themselves, they have this teacher. And you can have a hand in changing the world for the better. That's the first wisdom key. The second wisdom key is, this one is a little harsh, so I'll prep you for it. Never complain about what you're willing to permit. Never complain about what you are allowing. There is a lot to be upset about in the world. There might be a lot to be upset about in your own life. However, this wisdom key comes from the world of what I call radical responsibility. Taking radical responsibility for your life means to accept that everything that happens to and through you is because of you at some level. Now, we may not cause a car accident that we see. We may not choose to be in a bad relationship. It might truly feel like this all just happened to you at some point. One moment you wake up and you go, how did I get here? But the reality is that you're in a bad relationship because of you. Like, There's no other way to put it. You, you chose the person for whatever reason. You contribute to the relationship. And if you're still in the relationship and you find yourself complaining about it, well, I would tell you in my nicest voice, my teacher voice, my sensei voice, shut up about it or change it. Never complain about what you are allowing or willing to permit. We are all sovereign individuals. You have the opportunity and the chance to change things. If you're letting it happen and you find yourself complaining about it to another, you're responsible for it. Shut up about it or make some kind of change. Either accept that you're willing 
or change it. And in fact, this one rings in my head a lot being in the appraisal industry. Appraisers can be a tad complainy at times. I know that's not a word. At least they are on social media when there's uh, no responsibility. There's no repercussions for their words and their actions. If they're not complaining about another appraiser's work, they're complaining about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and USPAP guidelines and fees and hybrids and desktop appraisals and AMCs and realtors and lenders, and the list is long. You might be tempted to look at that list and think, well, gosh, Blaine, most of those things are not the result of the appraiser, and there are some legitimate concerns and complaints there, to which I would say, great, shut up and accept them or change the situation. I didn't say you can change another person. I didn't say you can change USPAP or Fannie Mae. That's not what this wisdom key is talking about. Never complain about you are about what you are willing to permit or allow is a wake-up call reminding you that we are always in control of our response to everything and anything in life. Did you hear me say that? We're always in control of our response. We may not always be in control of everything that happens to and through us, but we're always in control or should be. We always have the option of choosing our response. And it is a reminder. This wisdom key is a reminder that life does not happen to us. It happens through us and often because of us. If you don't like something, change it. If you're not going to make any changes, then shut up about it because anything less than action taken to change is merely complaining. That's wisdom key number two. The third wisdom key, I love this one, the secret of your future is hidden in something you do daily. The secret to and of your future is hidden in your daily routine. Now, we could go really deep on this one. I did a whole podcast years ago on the 10 wisdom keys, which are these 10 essentially here. I used to have 15. I narrowed it down to the top 10. And this one alone took me 15 minutes to explain. I went deep. There's a lot of wisdom here in this key. However, it's also fairly self-explanatory. If you want to know where you are headed and what is in your future, it's fairly easy to just look at what you do on a daily basis. What you do daily is what you are in the process of becoming tomorrow. And I will say that you are also cementing it. What you do daily becomes your habit. What you do moment to moment, what you think moment to moment. You are cementing those thoughts. Those become the habitual, that means habit. Those become the habitual patterns. In business, we often talk about our goals, our activities, our P&L, which is your profit and loss statement, our balance sheet, our 90-day rocks if you're into the traction method. Several other key things that help us kind of drive the ship in business, so to speak. Now, why do we focus on those things? Because all those things help predict what tomorrow, next month, and next year might look like for us. Without those KPIs or key performance indicators, we might not know. If we don't know which direction we're, we, we came from, we don't necessarily know which direction we're going. There are some things we do in life where we get immediate feedback. Throw a tennis ball. I mean, this is just physics. Throw a tennis ball against a wall and it will immediately bounce back in some direction, either back into your hand if you're good at catching it or somewhere else. Eat a half gallon of ice cream. You'll definitely feel some immediate results and you will get some kind of feedback. But the long-term effects are not known in that moment. 
The tennis ball has stopped bouncing already. But the effects of the ice cream, of course, will live on for a fair amount of time. Now, do that every night for six months straight, and some of those results will become very obvious to you. Some of the results will still not be visible unless you get a full physical done at a medical facility, get your blood work done, and you see that you've got diabetes. Drink 10 beers every single night after work, there will be a result. Sometimes there are immediate results, getting drunk, and then sometimes there are what we call lag results. We look at a PL statement to tell us what happened last month or last quarter. That's a lag result. We step on the scale to tell us what happened last week or month. That is a lag result. Most of the things that, that are giving us feedback are lag results. If you want to change your body and you want to start working out, you start working out 30 days later, you may not see any change. There are changes going on, but the results are lagging, just like they would in business. What we do daily is what we are becoming. And the secret to your future is hidden in something you are doing daily. Tear apart your day and mine it for the little things that you do that lead to positive results and also to the potentially negative ones. And although we often talk about and focus on having some kinds of goals for your personal and your professional life, I always recommend breaking those goals down into daily activities. And it's because of this wisdom key. James Clear, the Atomic Habits guy, read that book. It's all about breaking things down. It's about what you do habitually. It's not necessarily about the goal. He makes a very prescient point about how Olympians, I mean, the, the, the Olympics just finished up. If you watched any of them, at the end, there's always three people standing on the podium. Gold, silver, and bronze. And most likely, all three of those people had the same goals. Most likely, all three of those people had very similar training routines. The only thing separating them really was maybe some physicality, some DNA, maybe something in the training. But they all had goals. What about all the others that don't make it to the podium? They all had goals too. No, what, what makes up the difference is what we do habitually, what we do daily. And although we often talk about and focus on having those goals, if you haven't broken them down into daily activities, rituals, habits, the activity is what matters. The goal is too far off. Having a goal to lose, say, 10 pounds or increase revenue by 20% means nothing unless you can break those, down, those goals down into daily activities and routines that will get you there. Otherwise, how do you get there? It has to turn into a daily, weekly, and monthly routine. Now, this will also tie in nicely to the last wisdom key of never complaining about what you're willing to permit or allow. If there's something that, that you are allowing that bothers or upsets you, not only do you have the power to change it, but the secret to why things are the way they are is likely hidden in your daily routine. See what we did there? Whatever you are allowing is probably part of your daily routine. Whatever you are complaining about if you are a complainer, it's probably part of your daily routine. If there is something that you are allowing that bothers or upsets you, you've got the power to change it. You've got the power for how you respond to it. And most likely, the secret to why you are experiencing it is hidden in something you are doing daily. If you want to make changes in your life, examine what you do daily. Find the activities that lead to positive results, as well as the ones that are holding you back and then make some changes. I call that your arc of activity. Did a whole podcast on it. I'll put the links in this episode. Your arc of activity 
will determine where you will be in six months, one year, five years, and 10. But the secret is most likely hidden in your daily routine. Examine it, tear it apart, you'll find it. That's the third wisdom key. The fourth wisdom key, your rewards in life and business will be directly related or correlated with the kinds of problems you choose to solve and the value you create for others. Your rewards in life and business are directly correlated with the type and size of the problem that you've chosen to solve and how much value you are adding or creating for other people. Back to this podcast, Real Value Podcast, is all about, I say it at the beginning of every show, finding, creating, and adding value whenever and wherever we can with the short time we have. If you're new to this podcast, then this is the perfect introduction to one of the pillars of my teachable point of view and the philosophical foundation of my life, my businesses, and all of my successes and failures that I've had in both business and life. And I've had a bunch. In almost every instance where I have failed at something, it can be boiled down at some level to not creating or adding enough value, either for a person or in the market, and not discerning the type of problems that needed to be solved. Either because I was ignorant, immature, asking the wrong questions. In many of my failures, I was the pro- I was the problem. It wasn't somebody else, it wasn't something else. It I was the problem. And therefore, like a goldfish in a fishbowl, we don't get perspectives on our cell. We can't come outside of the fishbowl and look inside. So if we are the problem and we aren't mature enough, it can be very difficult to to discern what problem needs to be solved? Because in this case, I was the problem. Now, in other situations, I simply failed to solve the bigger problems that needed solving and therefore was unable to add enough value to a situation. You have to know what problem, what the big problems are. Sometimes you have to define the problem for a market. And if you can define the market properly, I mean, I talked about this in, in another podcast as well, creating your own market category. If you can define the problem in the right way where the market doesn't even know that that's a problem. And then all of a sudden they hear you say it and they go, yeah, that's right. You quite often are the only one solving it, which is in and of itself adding value. Now, wherever I have experienced conversely something some somebody could consider success, it was directly proportional to the type and the size of the problem that I had discerned needed solving. And then what kind of value I was able to deliver in the process of solving that problem. What kind of problem needs to be solved? How well are we discerning it? And then how do we add some value in solving that problem? Now, one of the lessons I've learned over the years when it comes to figuring out the problems to be solved and where to add value is that the type and the quality of our questions are absolutely vital. Before we can set about about to solve big problems and add a ton of value, we have to ask lots of questions in order to determine what problems need solving. I see people in businesses on a daily basis Working hard to do what they do best. I mean, again, this is appraisers. Some of the hardest working, nicest, best people in business. But they are often trying to solve a problem that doesn't need solving. Or it's a minor problem. They make it much bigger than it needs to be. It's a minor problem. If they would just step back for a few minutes and ask better questions about the needs and the wants of their customers and their clients, they would see that there are better problems for them to solve, much bigger ones, sometimes ones the client doesn't even know. And if they can solve bigger, badder, better problems for their clients, customers, and for the market, their rewards will be 
sometimes proportional, solve big problems, big rewards, sometimes outsized rewards, meaning you solve a big problem, but the rewards are astronomical. Just again, to use the appraiser industry, appraisers complaining about fees in their market are simply not discerning the problems that need to be solved. They're complaining about something that maybe they can change, maybe they can't, with a shift in their business, shift in their mindset, a shift in their marketing, a shift in going direct to the market, shift in how they ex, you know, explain things and solve problems in the market. But low fees in any industry are dead giveaway that a product or a service is either in the process of becoming or is already commoditized. The commoditization process is where uh, the, the product or service is only differentiated in the market or the market's mind based on price for the most part. There might be some other small little things. But if your product or service is commoditized, it means that really the market is only discerning based on price, like shoelaces. I need white shoelaces. I need them you know, 24 inches long and I can pay $5 or I can pay $3. Well, they look the same to me. Okay, differentiate only on price, commoditized. So there's some steps. First step, stop complaining. Remember, wisdom key. Never complain about what you're willing to allow. Stop complaining about it. Start changing how you do business. Second step, Ask better questions about what you're doing, who you're doing it for, and how you're doing it. If appraisal fees in your market, on average, I'm just throwing this out there, $250. That is the value that the market, the market of clients you do business with, has assigned to what you do. That's all they think it's worth. So you either accept it and you keep at it, or you do something about it. You change clients, you offer more, you do private, whatever it is. If you can't change what the market is paying for that product or service, this is usually where people stop. They just start complaining and then I go, well, do, make a change. Go, what am I supposed to do, Blade? Make a change. If you can't change what the market is paying, which you can't always, sometimes you can, sometimes you can get some clients to, to kind of see what you're doing and see how you're doing it differently and go, oh, well, that we're willing to pay more for. But if you can't get the market to change, offer something different. Change how you go to market. Change who you are serving with your solution based on the questions you asked. Those are your options and your rewards in life and business will be directly correlated with the type of problems and the size of the problems you choose to solve and the value you create for others. Blaine, I offer lots of value. Well, maybe they don't see it. Maybe they, maybe the market doesn't think so. I hear this all the time too. I'm the best in my market. We offer the most, but we still have these problems. Well, maybe your market doesn't perceive. Maybe you, only in your mind, are you super valuable. This again is a question problem. Ask better questions. That's the fourth wisdom key. Fifth, fifth wisdom key, and the last one for this episode, I'll do five more in the next episode. Your significance in business and life is not in your similarity to somebody else, not in comparison. Comparison is the thief of joy. We've heard this before. Your significance does not lie in that comparison, but in your differences. Your significance in business and life is not in your similarity to somebody else. It's in your differences. Celebrate the differences. This is important in relationships for sure. It's important in business, but it's important in relationships for sure. Because quite often, we desire to have other people be like us. And it's in that desire to have or make other people act and be like us that we repel. 
And anything that you don't respect will eventually move away from you. So it's important to understand and recognize that we don't need, we shouldn't want people to be just like us. I know there's concepts like like attracts like, magnetism. But your value to the world and your significance in business and life is not in that similarity. Recognize differences and celebrate those. I just mentioned the word commodity and commoditized in the last wisdom key, so this one naturally follows. My friends, we all do the same thing, more or less. We develop opinions about value in real estate as appraisers. And your value does not lie in that similarity, but in the differences you can provide to your market. And by the way, price quite often is a differentiator and price is always a problem to be solved in the market, but it's one of the least complex of the problems to be solved. Lowering price to be different is the laziest and least creative way to be different. And it solves a very small problem in the market. Now the downside of the lower price model is that it trains the market to believe that price is the only differentiator on that particular product. I'll do it for 400. Well, I'll do it for 350. I'll do it for 325. Well, I'll do it for 300. You're basically training the market to believe that price is the only differentiator. And if you get sucked into that battle, well, shame on you. It is your job to differentiate in a way that teaches the market why price and value may just have some direct correlation when it comes to real estate appraisals. If not, you're just a commodity. How do you differentiate? Well, we've talked about it many times before, and it will come down to you whether or not you are willing to make some of these, do some of these things, study some of these things, or make these changes. Scripts. Your scripting, how you talk on the phone, languaging, what words do you use, your marketing, having discussions, being open and willing to solve problems in the market, giving presentations out in the market, making videos, doing podcasts, meeting with the market participants, having marketing materials, having a good website that doesn't speak in appraiser speak, but speaks in market speak and asks important questions and solves their problems, not your problems. Make your clients feel like whatever they paid for your services was a bargain at twice the price, and then they'll be willing to pay it. There's a saying, it's often attributed to Henry Ford, I believe, and also the the poet Ezra Pound. But the more likely source is, is a quote from William Wrigley Jr., you know, the guy who created Wrigley's chewing gum, created that fortune. Quote goes something like this. Business is built by men who care, care enough to disagree, fight it out to the finish, and get facts. When two men always agree, one of them is unnecessary. I heard this quote a long time ago. And it really stuck in my brain. I remembered really just the last part. When two men always agree, one of them is unnecessary. Again, I heard it in the context of, I think, uh, Henry Ford sitting in a meeting and, and two people, you know, the, he didn't like yes men. And so there were people agreeing with him. And he basically said, again, this is the story. It's been attributed to him. I don't know if it's real or not. But where two men always agree, one of them is unnecessary. Where two companies and services are exactly the same in the minds of the consumer, the cheapest of the two will likely be chosen because the most expensive one is unnecessary. Which one are you? We deal with this as appraisers on a daily basis. This is the principle of substitution that we deal with on every appraisal. Your significance in the market lies not in your similarity to somebody else, but in your differences. And those differences need to be directly correlated with the big problems that you believe you're solving in the market. 
And then you have to do a good job of letting the market know what problems those are that you're solving. And hopefully they're problems that they think are problems. Ask better questions. Ask them of your clients and customers. We talked about this in the last episode, in the last podcast, uh, last interview, the Playing Big podcast. Very rarely do business owners, especially appraisers, ask their clients what's important to them. We think we, 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 we think we know what the market wants, but rarely do we ask our clients. We have to ask better questions and we have to ask them of our clients and customers. We have to figure out what big problems need to be solved and then devise a solution for solving them in a way that nobody else is doing. So here are some questions. How are you different from every other appraiser in your market? And please don't say, well, I do more research. I put more charts and graphs in my report. My report's more accurate. I still, I'm smarter. I'm better. I have more letters after my name. Please spare us all of that arrogant and conceited bullshit that no client bought ever. They want you to solve their problems and they will pay you at a rate commensurate with the type and level of the problem you solve. They don't care about how many letters are after your name. Rarely these days does a human being ever even read your appraisal report or crack the binding. It goes through the UDCP portal. Problems and issues are highlighted. A human looks only as far as they need to to identify a flag, an overvaluation risk score, a revision request is delivered, and once that is cleared, the appraisal goes in a file likely to never be opened again. There is a reason the industry is changing and moving to, say, desktop appraisals, hybrid reports. And it comes down primarily to the need for speed and efficiency. Argue all you want. I'm not advocating for or against. But there's a lot of people out there asking the wrong questions. Appraisers have had des- decades to ask better questions and solve bigger problems for their clients. And for the most part, they have done very little to solve those problems. Appraisers have been asking the wrong questions for a long time and therefore trying to solve a problem that may not really exist for their clients. Your significance in business and life is not in the similarity to another, but in your differences. How are you doing things different than everyone else? Where does your significance lie? And does it even matter to your clients and the market that you serve? Or is it only important in your mind? Five wisdom keys for life and business. We'll talk about the next five keys in the next episode. So until next week, my friends, I'm out.